Hey guys and gals, welcome back to another episode of Text to Life. This episode featuring the final of the three Socratic plays, the Socratic three, the first three dialogues of Plato's five dialogues about the trial and death of his teacher, Socrates. Now that title was very long and and it took forever to get to the point, but what we're doing here is we're going over Crito, the final of the first three Socratic plays written very soon after the death of Socrates by Plato. So since it does close this first trilogy of the three dialogues, the three Socratic dialogues, as we've said, let's go over what happened in the first two. If you remember in Euthyphro, the first one, Socrates is making his way to the trial. And of course, he runs into a man named Euthyphro, who is, by his own account, an expert in religious studies. And he goes over with him about the idea of piety and impiety. What does it mean to be religious? And who are the gods, really? And it's relating back to what he was accused for, being against the gods, being an atheist, and being against the state of Athens. Then you go on to the second one, which is called Apology. And Apology is mostly a monologue in which Socrates is defending himself against the court and against his prosecutors. So in that, there's his defense speech. There is his speech regarding the sentence or the punishment. And then there's the final speech, which tells about what the punishment actually was, which was death. His response to their idea, the court's idea, that is, that death is the right punishment for what he did. And he apologizes in his own way. Remember, in that one, he was telling the court about how he was different from every other person that they would have encountered. He walked to a different beat, and more importantly, I'd say, he didn't stoop to the level of other people coming to that court, other defendants, who would have begged and pleaded and done anything in their power to avoid a sentence. So then we arrive here at Crito, and in this one, we see that Socrates is in jail now, and about the time of his actual trial, there was a galley, a boat that was sent to the island of Dilos. It's a small island in the Aegean, and it's very sacred to the god Apollo, the god of knowledge and wisdom, which mainly manifests in something called truth. And of course, he's also considered the god of archery and music and dance and many other things. So what happened here? The court of Athens sends this missionary, this religious mission to the island, and it was this annual religious mission that was just going to be held. It was sacred in tradition. So at this time, they're couldn't be any executions or any courts of law or anything held in the public sphere because the public was in a state of piety. They were expressing their belief. So Socrates had to wait a month in the prison cell for this time to be over after the trial was officially over with. So to make it more clear, that was the weirdest way to explain it. The religious mission was being held during the trial. They sent it to the island and now Socrates had to wait a month after the day he was accused and sentenced. He had to wait in prison. So, what happens now? This is about a month after, and now the ship that originally went to Delos is now coming back. It's at Cape Sunium, and it's incoming in the port of Athens, Piraeus. It should be there any second now. Momentarily, meaning maybe a couple days, a couple hours, it's not very clear, but it's going to be there. It's very soon. It's coming back. So that means that very soon Socrates is going to be put up for execution. 
So, an old friend of Socrates, called Crito, who was actually mentioned in the Apology, comes to see him in the cell. And he tries to tell Socrates, tries to persuade him to leave, to get out while he can, to go into exile away from Athens somewhere else, just so he can live his life, the rest of his life. And with this ship coming back, it's going to be the last chance that he has. Because other friends of Socrates have been coming during this entire month asking him to go. Let's go. You can live. You can live somewhere else. So they were devising escape plans that could free him from the prison and take him somewhere else. And it's also thought that the authorities that were guarding the prison wouldn't have really cared if he left as long as he left Athens. So there are many important parts of this story. It's Socrates and his own morals, his own honor and virtue versus Crito and what he's telling him to do. Will he listen and leave the country? Well, it's kind of a spoiler already. If you read the title, it's trial and death. So somebody's being put to death and the most likely candidate for that is Socrates. It's a very famous death. But his reasoning for it, for staying and accepting the punishment that is, is because of his honor and his virtue. He can't do otherwise. He was sentenced in the world, in Athens, his world, and he has to face the punishment. Because the main thing is that he's been listening to these laws all his life, and now, when he's at the other end, the bad end of those laws, he's not going to escape. He's not going to run away. He's going to face the consequences. So this is Crito. This is the third dialogue of Plato, the last one in the Socratic triad, you can say. And this is how, very soon after the trial and death, the real one in history, occurred, this is what Plato wrote. So we begin the scene at the prison of Socrates in his cell, and Socrates says, Why have you come at this hour, Crito? It must be quite early. Yes, certainly. What is the exact time? The dawn. The dawn is breaking. I wonder... The keeper of the prison would let you in. He knows me because I often come, Socrates. Moreover, I have done him a kindness. And are you only just come? No, I came some time ago. Then why did you sit and say nothing instead of awakening me at once? Why, indeed, Socrates, I myself would rather not have all this sleepiness and sorrow. But I have been wondering at your peaceful slumbers... And that was the reason why I did not awaken you. Because I wanted you to be out of pain. I have always thought you happy in the calmness of your temperament. But never did I see the light of the easy, cheerful way in which you bear this calamity. Why, Crito, when a man has reached my age, he ought not to be repining at the prospect of death. And yet other old men find themselves in similar misfortunes, and age does not prevent them from repining. That may be, but you have not told me why you come at this early hour. I come to bring you a message which is sad and painful, not as I believe to yourself, but to all of us who are your friends, and the saddest of all to me. What? I suppose that the ship has come back from Delos on the arrival of which I am to die. No, 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 the ship has not actually arrived, but she will probably be here today, as persons who have come from Sunium tell me that they have left her there, and therefore tomorrow, Socrates, will be the last day of your life. 
Very well, Krito. If such is the will of God, I am willing. But my brief is that there will be a delay of a day. Why do you say this? I will tell you. I am to die on the day after the arrival of the ship. Yes, that's what the authorities say. But I do not think that the ship will be here until tomorrow. This I gather from a vision which I had last night, or rather only just now, when you fortunately allowed me to sleep. And what was the nature of the vision? There came to me the likeness of a woman fair and comely, clothed in white raiment, who called to me and said, O Socrates, the third day hence to Phythia shalt thou go. What a singular dream, Socrates! There can be no doubt about the meeting, Crito, I think. Yes, the meaning is only too clear, but, oh, my beloved Socrates, let me entreat you once more to take my advice and escape. For if you die, I shall not only lose a friend who can never be replaced, but there is another evil people who do not know you, and Menmimul believe that I might have saved you, if I had been willing to give money, but that I did not care. Now can there be a worse disgrace than this, that I should be thought to value money more than the life of a friend? For the many will not be persuaded that I wanted you to escape, and that you refused. But why, my dear Crito, should we care about the opinion of the many? Good men, and they are the only persons who are worth considering, will think of these things as truly as they happened. But do you see, Socrates, that opinion of the many must be regarded as it is evident in your own case. But they can do the very greatest evil to anyone who has lost their good opinion. I only wish, Crito, that they could, for then they could also do the greatest good, and that would be well. But the truth is that they can do neither good nor evil. They cannot make a man wise or make him foolish, and whatever they do is the result of chance. Well, I will not dispute about that, but please, to tell me, Socrates, whether you are not acting out of regard to me and your other friends. Are you not afraid that if you escape, hence we may get into trouble with the informers for having stolen you away and lose either the whole or the great part of our property? Or that even a worse evil may happen to us now, if this is your fear, be at ease. For in order to save you, we ought surely to run this or even a greater risk. Be persuaded then, and do as I say. Yes, Grito, that is one fear which you mention, but by no means the only one. Fear not, there are persons who are at no great cost are willing to save you and bring you out of prison, and as for the informers, you may observe that they are far from being exorbitant in their demands, and little money will satisfy them. My means, which, as I am sure, are ample, are at your service, and if you have a scruple about spending all mine, there are strangers who will give you the use of theirs, and one of them... Simeus, the Theban, has brought us some of money for this very purpose, and Seavis... And many others are willing to spend their money too. I say, therefore, do not, on that account, hesitate about making your escape. And do not say, as you did in the court, that you will have a difficulty in knowing what to do with yourself if you escape. For men will love you in other places to which you may go, and not in Athens only. There are friends of mine in Thessaly. If you'd like to go to them, who will value and protect you, and no Thessalian will give you any trouble, nor can I think that you are justified, Socrates, in betraying your own life when you might be saved. This is playing into the hands of your enemies and destroyers, and moreover, I should say that you were betraying your children, for you might bring them up and educate them, instead of which you go away and leave them, and they will have to take their chance, and if they do not meet with the usual fate of orphans, 
there will be small thanks to you. No man should bring children into the world who is unwilling to persevere to the end in their nurture and education. But you are choosing the easier part, as I think, not the better and the manlier, which would rather have become one who professed his virtue in all his actions, like yourself. And indeed, I am ashamed, not only of you, but of those who are your friends, when I reflect that this entire business of yours will be attributed to our want of courage. The trial need never had come on, or might have been brought to another issue, and the end of all, which is the crowding absurdity, will seem to have been permitted by us, through cowardice and baseness, who might have saved you, as you might have saved yourself, if we had been good for anything. For there was no difficulty in escaping, and we did not see how disgraceful Socrates and also miserable all this would be to us as well as to you. Make your mind up then, or rather, have your mind already made up. For the time of deliberation is over, and there is only one thing to be done which must be done, if at all, this very night, and which any delay would render all but impossible. I beseech you, therefore, Socrates, to be persuaded by me and do as I say." Dear Crito, your zeal is invaluable, if a right one, but if wrong, the greater the zeal, the greater the evil, and therefore we ought to consider whether these things shall be done or not. For I am, and always have been, one of those natures who must be guided by reason, whatever the reason may be, which upon reflection appears to me to be the best, and now that this fortune has come upon me, I cannot put away the reasons which I have before given, the principles which I have hitherto honored and revered, I still honor. And unless we can find other and better principles on in the instant, I'm certain not to agree with you. No, not even if the power of the multitude can inflict many more imprisonments, confiscations, deaths, frightening us like children with hobgoblin terrors. But what will be the fairest way of considering the question? Shall I return to your old argument about the opinions of men, some of which are to be regarded and others, as we were saying, are not to be regarded? Now, were we right in maintaining this before I was condemned? And has the argument which was once good now proved to be the talk for the sake of talking? In fact, in an amusement only, and altogether vanity, this is what I want to consider with your help, Crito, whether under my present circumstances the argument appears to be in any way different or not, and is to be allowed by me or disallowed. That argument, which as I believe is maintained by many who assume to be authorities, was to the effect, as I was saying, that the opinions of some men are to be regarded, and of other men not to be regarded. Now you, Crito, are a disinterested person who are not going to die tomorrow, at least there is no human probability of this, and you are therefore not liable to be deceived by the circumstances in which you are placed. Tell me then whether I am right in saying that some opinions, and the opinions of some men only, are to be valued and other opinions and the opinions of other men are not to be valued. I ask you whether I was right in maintaining this. Certainly. The good are to be regarded and not the bad? Yes. And the opinions of the wise are good and the opinions of the unwise are evil? Certainly. And what was said about another matter? Was the principal in gymnastics supposed to attend to the praise and blame and opinion of every man or of only one man? his physician or trainer, whoever that was, of one man only, and he ought to fear the censure and welcome the praise of that one only, and not of the many. That is clear, Socrates. 
and he ought to live and train and eat and drink in the way which seems good to his single master who has understanding, rather than according to the opinion of all other men put together. True, and if he disobeys and disregards the opinion and approval of the one and regards the opinion of the many who have no understanding, will he not suffer evil? Certainly he will. And what will the evil be, whether tending and what affecting in the disobedient person? Clearly affecting the body, that is what is destroyed by the evil. Very good, and is not this true, Crito, of other things which we need not separately enumerate? In the matter of just and unjust, fair and foul, good and evil, which are the subjects of our present consultation, ought we to follow the opinion of the many and to fear them? or the opinion of the one man who has understanding and whom we ought to fear and reverence more than all the rest of the world, and whom deserting we shall destroy and injure the principle in us which may be assumed to be improved by justice and deteriorated by injustice. Is there not such a principle? Certainly there is, Socrates. Take a parallel instance. If Acting under the advice of men who have no understanding, we destroy that which is improvable by health and deteriorated by disease when that has been destroyed. I say, would life be worth having, and that is the body? Yes. Could we live having an evil and corrupted body? Certainly not. And will life be worth having if that higher part of a man be depraved, which is improved by justice and deteriorated by injustice? Do we suppose that principle, whatever it may be in man, which has to do with justice and injustice, be inferior to the body? Certainly not. More honored, then? Far more honored. Then, my friend, we must not regard what the many say of us, but what he, the man who has understanding of just and unjust, will say, and what the truth will say. And therefore you begin in error when you suggest that we should regard the opinion of the many about just and unjust, good and evil, honorable and dishonorable. Well, someone will say, but the many can kill us. Yes, Socrates, that will clearly be the answer. That is true, but still I find with surprise that the old argument is, as I conceive, unshaken as ever. And I should like to know whether I may say the same of another proposition that of life. But a good life is to be chiefly valued. Yes, that also remains. And a good life is equivalent to a just and honorable one. That holds also. Yes, that holds. From these premises, I proceed to argue the question whether I ought or ought not to try to escape without the consent of the Athenians. And if I am clearly right in escaping, then I will make the attempt. But if not, I will abstain. The other considerations which you mention of money and the loss of character and the duty of educating children are, I fear, only the doctrines of the multitude, who would be as ready to call people to life if they were able as they are to put them to death, and with as little reason. But now, since the argument has thus far prevailed, the only question of which remains to be considered is whether we shall do rightly either in escaping or in suffering others to aid in our escape in paying them in money and thanks, or whether we shall not do rightly, and if the latter, then death or any other calamity which may ensue on my remaining here and must 
not be allowed to enter into the calculation. I think that you are right, Socrates. How, then, shall we proceed? Let us consider the matter together, and do you either refute me if you can, and I will be convinced, or else cease, my dear friend, from repeating to me that I ought to escape against the wishes of the Athenians. For I am extremely desirous to be persuaded by you, but not against my own better judgment. And now, please to consider my first position, and do your best to answer me. I will do my best. Are we to say that we are never intentionally to do wrong, or that in one way we ought and in another way we ought not to do wrong, or is doing wrong always evil and dishonorable, as I was just now saying, and has been already acknowledged by us? Are all our former admissions which were made within a few days to be thrown away? And have we, in our age, been earnestly discoursing with one another all our life, only to discover that we are no better than children? Or are we to rest assured, in spite of the opinion of the many, and in spite of the consequences, whether better or worse, of the truth that was said, that injustice is always an evil, and dishonor to him who acts unjustly. Shall we affirm that? Yes. Then we must do no wrong. Certainly not. Nor when injured, injure in return. As the many imagine, for we must injure no one at all. Clearly not. Again, Crito, may we do evil? Certainly not, Socrates. And what of doing evil in return for evil, which is the morality of the many, is that just or not? Not just. For doing evil to another is the same as injuring him. Very true. Then we ought not to retaliate or render evil for evil to anyone, whatever evil we may have suffered from him. But I would have you consider, Crito, whether you really mean what you are saying. For this opinion has never been held and never will be held by any considerable number of persons. And those who are agreed and those who are not agreed upon this point have no common ground and can only despise one another when they see how widely they differ. Tell me then whether you agree with and assent to my first principle that neither injury nor retaliation nor warding off evil by evil is ever right. And shall that be the premise of our argument? Or do you decline and dissent from this? For this has been of old and is still my opinion, but if you are of another opinion, let me hear what you have to say. If, however, you remain of the same mind as formerly, I will proceed to the next step. You may proceed, for I have not changed my mind. Then I will proceed to the next step, which may be put in the form of a question. Ought a man to do what he admits to be right, or ought he to betray the right? He ought to do what he thinks right. But if this is true, what is the application in leaving the prison against the will of the Athenians? Do I wrong any? Or rather, do I not wrong those whom I ought least to wrong? Do I not desert the principles which were acknowledged by us to be just? What do you say? I cannot tell, Socrates, for I do not know. Then consider the matter in this way. Imagine that I am about to play Trant, and the laws and the government come and interrogate me. Tell us, Socrates, they say, what are you about? 
are you going by an act of yours to overturn us, the laws, and the whole state, as far as in you lies? Do you imagine that a state can subsist and not be overthrown in which the decisions of law have no power, but are set aside and overthrown by individuals? What will be our answer? Crito, to these and the like words. Anyone, and especially a clever rhetorician, will have a good deal to urge about the evil of setting aside the law, which requires a sentence to be carried out, and we might reply, yes, but the state has injured us and given an unjust sentence. Suppose I say that. Very good, Socrates. And was that our agreement with you, the law would say, or were you to abide by the sentence of the state? And if I were to express astonishment at their saying this, the law would probably add, Answer, Socrates, instead of opening your eyes, you are in the habit of asking and answering questions. Tell us what complaint you have to make against us, which justifies you in attempting to destroy us and the state. In the first place, did we not bring you into existence? Your father married your mother by our aid and begat you. Say whether you have any objection to urge against those of us who regulate marriage. None, I should reply. Or against those of us who regulate the system of nurture and education of children in which you were trained. Were not the laws who have the charge of this right in commanding your father to train you in music and gymnastic? Right, I should reply. Well then, since you were brought into this world and nurtured and educated by us, can you deny in the first place that you are our child and slave, as your fathers were before you. And if this is true, you are not on equal terms with us, nor can you think that you have a right to do to us what we are doing to you. Would you have any right to strike or revile or do any other evil to a father or to your master? If you had one, when you have been struck or reviled by him or received some other evil at his hands. You would not say this, and because we think right to destroy you, do you think that you have any right to destroy us in return, and your country as far as in you lies? And will you, O professor of true virtue, say that you are justified in this? Has a philosopher like you failed to discover that our country is more to be valued and higher and holier far than mother or father or any ancestor? and more to be regarded in the eyes of the gods and of men of understanding, also to be soothed and gently and reverently entreated when angry, even more than the father, and if not persuaded, obeyed, and when we are punished by her, whether with imprisonment or stripes, the punishment is to be endured in silence, and if she leads us to wounds or death in battle, thither we follow as is right." Neither may anyone yield or retreat or leave his rank, but whether in battle or in court of law, or in any other place, he must do what his city and his country order him, or he must change their view of what is just. And if he may do no violence to his father or mother, much less may he do violence to his country. What answer shall we make to this, Crito? Do the laws speak truly, or do they not? I think that they do. Then the laws will say this, Consider, Socrates, if this is true, that in your present attempt you are going to do us wrong. For after having brought you into the world, 
and nurtured and educated you and given you and every other citizen a share in every good that we had to give, we further proclaim and give the right to every Athenian that if he does not like us when he has come of age and has seen the ways of the city and made our acquaintance, he may go where he pleases and take his goods with him. And none of us laws will forbid him or interfere with him. Any of you who does not like us in the city and who wants to go to a colony or to any other city may go where he likes and take his goods with him. But he who has experience in the manner in which we order justice and administer the state and still remains has entered into an implied contract that he will do as we command him. And he who disobeys us is, as we maintain, thrice wrong. First, because in disobeying us, he is disobeying his parents. Secondly, because we are the authors of his education. Thirdly, because he has made an agreement with us that he will duly obey our commands. And he neither obeys them nor convinces us that our commands are wrong. And we do not rudely impose them but give him the alternative of obeying or convincing us. That is what we offer, and he does neither. These are the sort of accusations to which, as we were saying you, Socrates, will be exposed if you accomplish your intentions, you above all other Athenians. Suppose I ask, why is this? They will justly retort upon me that I, above all other men, have acknowledged the agreement. There is clear proof, they will say, Socrates, that we and the city are not displeasing to you. Of all Athenians, you have been the most constant resident in the city, which, as you never leave, you may be supposed to love. For you never went out of the city either to see the games except once when you went to the Isthmus or to any other place unless when you were on military service. Nor did you travel as other men do, nor had you any curiosity to know other states or their laws. Your affections did not go beyond us and our state. We were your especial favorites, and you acquiesced in our government of you. And this is the state in which you begat your children, which is proof of your satisfaction. Moreover, you might, if you had liked, have fixed the penalty at banishment in the course of the trial. The state which refuses to let you go now would have let you go then. But you pretended that you preferred death to exile, and that you were not grieved at death. And now you have forgotten these fine sentiments, and pay no respect to us, the laws of whom you are the destroyer, and are doing what only a miserable slave would do, running away and turning your back upon the compacts and agreements which you made as a citizen." And first of all, answer this very question. Are we right in saying that you agreed to be governed according to us in deed, and not in word only? Is that true or not? How shall we answer that, Crito? Must we not agree? There is no help, Socrates. Then will they not say you, Socrates, are breaking the covenants and agreements which you made with us at your leisure? not in any haste or under any compulsion or deception, but having had seventy years to think of them, during which time you were at liberty to leave the city, if we were not to your mind, or if our covenants appeared to you to be unfair, you had your choice, and might have gone either 
to Lacedaemon or Crete, which you often praise for their good government, or to some other Hellenic or foreign state, whereas you, above all other Athenians, seem to be so fond of the state, or, in other words, of us, her laws, for who would like a state that has no laws, laws that you never stirred out of her, the halt, the blind, the maimed, were not more stationary in her than you were. And now you run away and forsake your agreements. Not so, Socrates, if you will take our advice, do not make yourself ridiculous by escaping out of the city. For just consider, if you transgress and err in this sort of way, what good will you do, either to yourself or to your friends? that your friends will be driven into exile and deprived of citizenship or lose their property is almost certain. And you yourself, if you fly to one of the neighboring cities, as for example Thebes or Megara, both of which are well-governed cities, will come to them as an enemy, Socrates, and their government will be against you. And all patriotic citizens will cast an evil eye upon you as a subverter of the laws. And you will confirm in the minds of the judges the justice of their own condemnation of you. For he who is a corrupter of the laws is more than likely to be a corrupter of the young and foolish portion of the mankind. Will you then flee from well-ordered cities and virtuous men? And is existence worth having on these terms? Or... Will you go to them without shame and talk to them, Socrates? And what will you say to them? What you say here about virtue and justice and institutions and laws being the best things among men? Would that be decent of you? Surely not. But if you go away from well-governed states to Crito's friends in Thessaly, where there is great disorder and license, they will be charmed to have the tale of your escape from prison set off with ludicrous particulars of the manner in which you were wrapped in a goatskin or some other disguise and metamorphosized as the fashion of runaways is, that is, very likely. But will there be no one to remind you that in your old age you violated the most sacred laws of a miserable desire of a little more life? Perhaps not, if you keep them in a good temper, but... If they are out of temper, you will hear many degrading things you will live. But how? As the flatterer of all men, and the servant of all men, and doing what? Eating and drinking in Thessaly? Having gone abroad, in order that you may get a dinner? And where will be your fine sentiments about justice and virtue then? Say that you will wish to live for the sake of your children, that you may bring them up and educate them. Will you take them into Thessaly and deprive them of the Athenian citizenship? Is that the benefit which you would confer upon them? Or are you under the impression that you will be better cared for and educated here if you are still alive, although absent from them, for that your friends will take care of them? Do you fancy that if you are an inhabitant of Thessaly, they will take care of them? And if you are an inhabitant of the other world, they will not take care of them? Nay, but if they who call themselves friends are truly friends, they surely will. Listen then, Socrates, to us who have brought you up. Think not of life and children first, and of justice afterwards, but of justice first, that you may be justified before the princes of the world below. 
For neither will you nor any that belong to you be happier or holier or juster in this life or happier in another. If you do as Crito bids, now you depart in innocence, a sufferer and not a doer of evil, a victim not of the laws, by injury, by breaking the covenants and agreements which you have made with us, and wronging those whom you ought least to wrong, that is to say, yourself, your friends, your country, and us. We shall be angry with you while you live, and our brethren, the laws in this world below, will receive you as an enemy, for they will know that you have done your best to destroy us. Listen then to us, and not to Crito. This is the voice which I seem to hear murmuring in my ears, Crito, like the sound of the flute in the ears of the mystic. That voice, I say, is humming in my ears and prevents me from hearing any other. And I know that anything more which you will say will be in vain. Yet speak, if you have anything to say. I have nothing to say, Socrates. Then... Let me follow the imitations of the will of God. And thus concludes Crito, the third dialogue in the trilogy of dialogues, Socratic dialogues, by Plato. And it wraps up the story of the trial and death fairly well. You've seen the beginning before the trial. You've seen the trial. And now you just saw the aftermath, what Socrates had to deal with. And I keep catching myself. I always say see. You'll have to see something, but you're just listening to me. You don't see anything. So just mind that when I say stuff like that. I really mean you just heard. You just heard the ending of the Socratic trilogy. And what an ending it was, whereby a man, Crito, comes to Socrates' aid and tells him, I can free you. The people, your friends, can help me. The people of Athens will help you, and you can leave. What's holding you back? And Socrates, he keeps coming back and telling Crito, I cannot betray the trust I have built with this city, with this government. Because, he says, if I betray this city, I am betraying a mother, a father, and a teacher. I am betraying the nurture of the mother, the order of the father, and the education of the teacher. If I leave now, after the trial is done, my punishment is set. My accusation was fulfilled. The sentence is wrought. And now, after all that, after all the chances I had to leave, to be exiled, I'm going to go now? Now it would just be disrespect to the state. Now it would really be childish, ridiculous, as it says in the dialogue, ridiculous to leave. You had so many chances before and during the trial. You had so many outs. And now you're going to go. It will ruin his own dignity to leave now. To leave as Crito tells him. So he doesn't and he suffers the punishment. And the punishment was death, of course. And he drank hemlock famously and passed away. And thus was the end of Socrates. And as you can see here, uh, uh, here, here, here. As you can hear in the dialogue, it tells us that the ship is actually a day away. So I said hours, um, maybe 23 hours instead of a day away. But tomorrow is the death, and tomorrow he ends his life following the state till the last breath. And it's an interesting thing to keep in mind today. 
Because all these stories are stories that we have to take in light today. Because this really means nothing to us. We can't apply it. If it's just a story, then it's just for fun, really. If we're reading it, it's more important when we can apply it to what's going on today. And I'd say that in so doing, meaning Socrates taking the punishment, it shows that he respects the state that has grown him for 70 years now. And now we have to to look to the governments that support us today, that nurture and educate us. And for that, we have to respect them. We have to follow their laws. Because without their laws, we cannot grow and we cannot learn to see when the laws may be full of injustice. And that injustice should be ripped out through justful actions. Because remember, from the dialogue, Socrates is kind of playing the role of the law, right? He's kind of talking the law. He's playing the law, basically. What would the law say to him if he says this to the law? If he says this being, I'm going to leave now. So he plays this part and he says, as the law now, he says, when you have grown in our stead, we've nurtured and educated you, you come to a point where you make a promise to the state. The state says, if you like the law, you are more than free to stay and continue to live your life as you have been living. If you do not like the law or the running of the state, justice free to leave. But remember, if you do stay, you follow the law to the T. If nothing more than just pure respect for what the law has done for you. And now it doesn't say this clearly in the text, but we can impart our more modern sensibilities, our modern American sensibilities, that is, and say that we can use the law to change the law because there are aspects of the law and the government that are there for change. Take amendments, for example, like amendments to the Constitution. And now this is very important to note, when you have broken the law and you're accused for it and you're sentenced by the law, as in the case of Socrates, you cannot complain and you cannot evade judgment. Because we had this promise, this covenant, as they keep referring to here, this holy promise between you and this entity that is the law, that you will obey the entity and the entity will protect you. And now, say a criminal has gone and broken that promise. And what do you expect the law to do but retaliate? Because if this entity possesses some sort of human tendencies or a personification of human tendencies, as like Socrates has been doing here, he's been playing the role of the law, the human will retaliate. Now, insofar as the law is truth and is above the individual human, the law will take any justifiable measure to enforce itself. And you know what? That's completely fair. That's completely fair because you chose, the citizen chose to stay when they had the capabilities of leaving. Say now... In the U.S., you become an adult at the age of 18. And if we use that as our artificial cutting point where you have to make that sort of judgment and make the plan of what you're going to do, are you going to leave or are you going to stay? If you stay, you are subject to those laws. Therefore, you are subject to the just punishment that comes from breaking those laws. And these laws come from ourselves, from basic natural ideas like the idea, the natural biological idea that survival is good. Therefore, not 
survival is not good. So we make laws for that. We want to survive so things like murder is illegal. Preventing another's right to survive is not good. Therefore, it's against the law and unjust. And if done, if the action of murder is committed, there will be punishment for that. Severe punishment for that. There's also another biological drive to live in your own environment and operate as you'd like to operate, meaning that actions are free of any outward, external pressures. An individual organism, say a person, should be able to make their own decisions in life. So we make laws that protect those liberties, the freedom to act. And now we can take that freedom to act and push it forward. The freedom to act as you'd like to act in order to make yourself, the individual, happy. Now, if we look at those three things that we just said, what are they more than the freedoms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? These are our core and inalienable rights. And we have our government to thank for them. And if they are not achieved by our government, we have the right to change them. And that's what life in a society is. It's a balance of the individual and the state. If one falls too heavy on the scale, the whole system breaks down. So we each have to do our part to obey the law and make sure that the law is just and right for all. And that is what Crito by Plato can show us that we have a constant interaction with the law, with the state, with the government, and that interaction must be respected and cared for and educated. Thank you for listening to this episode of Text to Life, a podcast series from The Logs. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go right now to our merch store and get yourself some awesome swag from the logs. You can grab a transcription of the episode by listening on YouTube. Follow us on all our social media platforms. And above all, remember to laugh a little.